This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Retirement. Every federal employee is going to get there someday. For most, the goal is you don't work anymore or work only because you want to. Your main question is how much income is enough for you to retire? For some insight, federal retiree Abe Grungold of AB Financial Services. I asked him how much you do need to begin retirement. It varies from person to person and whether you're married or single, but it's funny, even when I've been retired now for two years, my wife will still ask me, do we have enough money to retire on? And really the goal for every individual should be at a minimum 80% of your pre-retirement income. So it should be 80% of your gross. That is a good number to start with. Yeah, so that means the type of life you can have in retirement is, unless you're really, really good at investing and saving, will be in some relation to how you lived while you were working. Exactly. You know, if you could pay your bills now based on your salary, and you should be able to pay your bills in retirement. Now, it's also important, and it also depends on your lifestyle because when we retire, we spend more and a big factor is your health. The other factor that you really have to consider is how much debt are you going to carry with you into retirement? And that's crucial. Maybe it's more crucial how much debt you're willing to carry into the grave because then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yes. Unfortunately, a lot of people like to buy large ticket items when they retire, a retirement home, motorcycle. Now you're talking. A boat. That's fine. That's great. It's wonderful. But you have to make sure that is within your budget and you should be starting your budget for retirement five years prior to retiring. You should get in the habit of seeing on a monthly basis how much are you making, how much are you spending, and will you have enough income in retirement? And these numbers, these income numbers would be coming from your FERS annuity. It'd be coming from Social Security, your thrift saving plan, your personal savings, and if you want to, uh, employment in retirement. Right. Some people choose to do some work in retirement, but it should be something you choose to do, maybe not something you have to do. People, it's very important in retirement to be active, both mentally and physically. And a lot of uh, federal retirees do a part-time job in retirement just to keep them active mentally and physically. Now, I know a lot of people, a lot of coworkers, clients of mine who had a desk job in the government. They don't want to be sitting at a desk in retirement. They want to do something physically active. And a great job is a school crossing guard. It's a part-time job. You're out there physically walking around. You're doing something good for the community. And you're also earning some part-time income. 
So these are important things for a lot of retirees to do. Yeah, for that matter, even if the income is slight, you could probably volunteer in jobs similar to that. Yes, for for those retirees who really do not have to worry about their financial income, volunteering is very important. I do a lot of volunteering uh, in addition to my business, and it really uh, helps me feel good about myself, and uh, it's an excellent way to give back to the community. It's a, it's a great way. Well, you're definitely the type of person I would want to referee my pickleball tournament. <laughs> I would be more than fear, Tom. More if I, than fear, but I don't know. My eyesight is not as good as it once was. <laughs> <laughs> well, my pickleball is not existent at all. I've never touched one. And getting back to that budget idea, doing a detailed budget over a period of time can also maybe show up areas where you could probably cut back a little bit without really harming your lifestyle. Yes, there are many ways that you can cut back. You know, you have to really think about your spending. Like if you still have cable, maybe you ought to think about doing some uh, streaming services, which are much less than the cable service. If you have a home telephone, Maybe it's something you don't need anymore in retirement. You can just rely on your cell phone. You have to take a look at your insurance, auto insurance, life insurance, and see whether it's a good idea to shop around. These are great ways to save an extra few hundred dollars here and there, and they add up quickly. They do. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's retired federal manager himself and owner of AB Financial Services out of Florida. And you said start thinking about this five years in advance. I mean, most people probably don't think about it till about six months to go and they wake up and say, holy, jumping Jehoshaphat, what am I going to do here? Yes, really. You should be thinking about it five years ahead of time. You should be looking to see where that retirement income stream is going to come from what your expenses are going to look like in retirement, and you really need to focus on this five years ahead of time and have a good plan going into retirement. Now, the the thing that's also very important when you are calculating these numbers are what I call the unknown factors when you retire. The unknown factors are health care, long-term care, grandchildren, and inflation. So if you want to provide for your grandchildren, where is that money going to come in your budget? If you know you have to deal with health care issues, and we most people do when they retire, you have to have an emergency fund to handle medicines, uh, medical procedures, and you have to always think about inflation. And the other factor, which everyone may or may not have to deal with, is long-term care. And that is very expensive. That can be anywhere from seventy-five to well over $100,000 a year to be in a nursing home. Very expensive situation. Right. And if you have any assets whatsoever above a couple of thousand bucks or something beyond your home, 
then you will not be eligible for Medicaid, God forbid, which will cover a nursing home. It's basically the provider of last resort. Yes. The Medicaid, in order to qualify for Medicaid, you really have to be in a low-income situation. And when you go to a nursing home, they're going to want a very detailed listing of all your assets, and they want to be sure that you can pay the nursing home bills, whether they're going to come from your personal savings, from your TSP, or whether you're going to be a Medicaid-eligible uh, uh, resident. So you really have to think about all these things ahead of time. Right. And for purposes of Medicaid, you can't say, oh, gosh, I'm going to give away everything to the grandkids now and then a month later become on Medicaid because they have a five-year, I believe it is, yeah. look back, right? Yes, they definitely have that five-year look back, and they will carefully look at all those things. State has a lot of resources where they can look to see when you transferred your house to your children and when you transferred uh, your assets to your children. Now, that situation did happen with my own parents. They did it 20 years prior to them going into a nursing home, and both my parents did end up in a nursing home. So that situation was taken care of long before. And it was something that they thought of. It wasn't something that I approached them with. So, uh, you know, you really have to think of these things. It's unfortunately, but you do. And you also have to plan not only for your health care costs, but also for your minimum required withdrawal from your TSP. Now, they keep moving the goalposts on when that has to occur. I think it's now, if I'm correct, 72 or 72 and a half years old. Congress moved it up. Yes, the age is going to change over the next few years, depending on how old you are. It can be 73, and a few years later, it can be even a higher age. But yes, you do have to make required minimum distributions. Now, the TSP is going to help you make those required minimum distributions. And if you have your money sitting in a company like Fidelity or Charles Schwab, they also will help you to figure out what those numbers are. Basically, they're about 3% of your total balance. So if you have a traditional IRA, a traditional TSP, it will be about 3% of your balance. So, yes, that so, money will have to come out. And that's the number then you plug into your monthly income is at roughly 3% of your balance, and that's going to vary depending on the market and so on. And what about tax planning? Because that's another bugaboo that people sometimes overlook. You're going to be in a different income bracket perhaps, and you'll have different deductions and so on. Well, Tom, you know what I always tell everyone is I don't mind paying taxes. Because if I'm paying taxes, I'm financially doing very well. But yes, when you retire as a federal retiree, you should be in a lower income tax bracket. And you need to plan for taxes by diverting your funds where you can avoid paying taxes on money that's sitting in the bank. You could buy savings bonds. You can do other measures to avoid paying taxes, but you do have to pay taxes. You could be in a tax bracket of anywhere 
from 15% all the way up to 30%. And I honestly don't mind paying taxes because I know financially I am doing better than uh, a lot of people out there, and I don't mind paying my taxes. Of course, you didn't stay in New Jersey or New York. I mean, you are in Florida, so people like paying taxes, but they like buying. They like paying less than paying more if it's if they have that option. Well, that's good tax planning on my part. Yeah, I do avoid the state income tax in Florida, and there are a number of states across the U.S. where you do not have to pay state income tax. And federal retirees do move to those states. And that is just part of tax planning. But unfortunately, a lot of people can't move away from their families. So I have many neighbors who live here in Florida. They've been here one or two years, and now they're moving back up north because they can't be away from their family. So that is a decision that you have to make. What's more important, your family and friends? Or tax planning. Or whether so, you can afford a fractional Learjet and go back and forth anytime you want. <laughs> That's true. That is true. But, you know, snowbirds, it's it's a difficult situation today because snowbirds have to maintain two properties. And that is a very expensive undertaking in retirement. That is something you have to plan for five years prior to retiring. Can you afford to carry two properties? And uh, it's a difficult uh, scenario. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and now owner of AB Financial Services. We'll take a short break, and when we return, some ideas for what Congress could do to protect federal whistleblowers. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Improper payments, fraud, and nearly every major federal program, contracting irregularities and false claims. These problems roll on and on year after year. Whistleblowers who point out these and other problems need several legal reforms. That's according to the leading whistleblower attorney, Stephen Cohn of Cohn, Cone and Colapinto. Here's some highlights from my recent interview with him. If there's any group of whistleblowers in the world that need the strongest confidentiality protections, it's those who are reporting money laundering and sanctions violations. Who has the inside information about Hamas financing, about Iranian financing of terrorism? Who has that? And think about how vulnerable these sources of information are. Congress said as of January 1, 2021, that every one of these whistleblowers can go to the U.S. Department of Justice anonymously and confidentially and make their reports. Yet there's nothing on a website, no operating procedure, no rule, and the agents responsible for investigating and interacting with these informants don't even know of the legal requirements. Totally, completely unacceptable. And these laws, the the January 1 law was completely bipartisan, totally. There was no opposition in Congress to this 
right of whistleblowers that was deemed so critical in this important area, yet nothing for now going on three years. We're speaking with attorney Stephen Cohn. He's a partner at Cohn, Cohn and Colapinto. And I guess we can move on to the Securities and Exchange Commission. You're finding something that they need to <laughs> so do. We're having fun. We're having fun now, aren't we? Yes, we it, are, actually. Okay. So there's a bill, again, a bipartisan bill, equal number of Democrats and Republicans. So you have Senator Chuck Grassley, conservative Republican from Iowa, co-sponsoring it with Elizabeth Warren, liberal Democrat from Massachusetts. No opposition. Other senators from both parties supporting this bill. It would do two things. First, it would permit whistleblowers who report to internal compliance and their supervisors, their audit committees, to be covered and not be subject to retaliation pursuant to the Dodd-Frank Act. Right now, if a whistleblower for a company goes to the head of their audit committee and is fired, they have no rights under Dodd-Frank. This would change that. Everyone supports it. Second, there's massive delays. The SEC program has been very successful. Thousands of people have come in. They've awarded many awards to whistleblowers. But what we know is there's literally hundreds upon hundreds of valid whistleblowers waiting in the queue, sometimes up to three to five years, just to get their award, which is required by statute. So you have a whistleblower who's lost their job. The government has collected, say, hundreds of millions of dollars in sanctions. The law says they're supposed to get an award for their contribution. Yet, they could sit unemployed. I even had a client once who had to go on to Medicaid for health insurance. Total poverty because they'd lost their job waiting for what was their legal entitlement. So this statute puts a one-year requirement on the SEC to make an initial determination, covers internal. Simple changes to make the law work. Total bipartisan support, stalled. And you're finding the same problem at the IRS, repeal by delay. The IRS takes it to a new level. Their average delay, average that they admit to, in their reports is 10 years. Essentially, the program is the walking dead. What whistleblower can wait 10 years for a payment of an award for which they are legally entitled, to which the government has concluded the prosecution? It shows an apathy. It shows an administrative hostility to whistleblowing a cultural issue that does exist within the federal government, we'll address that down below, where it just isn't the priority it should be. And again, this comes back to the Treasury Department that hasn't done the AML rules, the IRS is under Treasury, it isn't a priority supporting these whistleblowers. So this bill would simply say that if you delay an award to a fully qualified whistleblower for over one year, you have to pay them interest on the money they're supposed to get paid. And our experts know that the IRS is like tuned to money. And if there was an interest requirement, they most likely would prioritize the payments. 
There's other reforms in there, but that's the key. And the delay has been totally undermining the reporting of large-scale tax evasion. All right. And the list goes on. We'll have to do the lightning round here for your last three priorities for Congress here. Strengthen the False Claims Act. There is a matter for the Commodities Future Trading Commission and for just simply basic respect by the federal government for whistleblowers. So just to put these three into better context, the CFTC fund, there's just not enough money in the fund to pay the whistleblower. To understand it, the fund is created by the sanctions whistleblowers bring into the government. No whistleblower, no fund, no money to this fund. But the fund has a low cap. So I would say at least 95% of the sanctions that come into the CFTC just pass on to the federal budget. So when it's time to compensate the whistleblower, there's no money there. It's a very simple reform, full bipartisan support, No one expected the CFTC whistleblower program to be as successful as it's been, and they have to have a fund to pay the people. Simple. The false claims in the respect of the agencies, all of this is really at the heart that there remains resistance to whistleblowing within the federal bureaucracy. Some agents and officials love whistleblowers. They're really supportive. They're doing a fantastic job but others don't. So that's why we're really pushing this idea of National Whistleblower Day, which has received unanimous support in the U.S. Senate for 10 consecutive years. And it's essentially requiring federal agencies to look at the contributions of whistleblowers, publicize them, and educate their own workforce and the public as to why whistleblowing is important as really a cornerstone to change the underlying culture that impacts all of these problems. Wow. So Congress can't even get done what it agrees on. Now it's easy to see why they can't get done what they don't agree on, I guess. What's so frustrating about this is that you have some really good laws on the books, excellent laws, and we see how they can work and how whistleblowers can be fully supported, can be fully compensated. And so then we look at problems within these laws or very technical reforms that are needed to make what is really a good foundation to be effective, not just to some high-profile cases, but to the -the run-of-the-mill average whistleblower just trying to get compensation, just trying to feed their family, just trying to survive, and not forced to undergo delays and other roadblocks. So some of these laws are working fantastic. Others are stalled up. Bottom line is that over 80% of the American people want to see these stronger protections. And it's so incumbent for people to really raise their voices and say, let's get the job done. Attorney Stephen Cohn is a partner at Cohn, Cohn and Colapinto. Find the entire interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And that's it for this week. We'll return next week with more for your professional and financial life. I'm Tom Tammen. This is FedLife here on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.